Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So last week um, I was in California and uh, I got an opportunity to speak at a Calvary Chapel there. Uh, the pastor of that church actually was the pastor uh, that... Uh, our first Calvary Chapel pastor, I should say, that Teresa and I, uh, we got involved with Calvary Chapel out in California. Years passed, and uh, we've developed, we've continued a relationship with them. And anyway, so we were out there, and, and I was asked to uh, teach at that Sunday morning service. Teresa taught at a woman's retreat out there, and she got to be by the beach and enjoy watching whales and stuff right by the beach. I mean, it was, I'm like, man, I wish I was there. Um, I was on the East Bay over in Fremont, uh, California, um, but it was still good to be out there. My mom lives out there, and I have a couple siblings out there, so we got a chance to spend some time with them. Um, one of the things that kind of struck me um, was just the culture difference between uh, Minnesota and California and uh, it comes out in kind of subtle ways, maybe not some, not too subtle ways, but uh, one of the things is the crowds. And uh, man, I tell you, I experienced that in spades um, out there uh, driving around. But um, one of the things that I've noticed, and it's a kind of a difference, and if you've grown up here in, well, Minnesota in particular, or in the Midwest in general, you might kind of, uh, you know, this might be like, what's the deal with that? Um, we, we have a Costco membership. And uh, I don't know if you've noticed that. You see, I kind of took that car and put a square around it, and I moved it. If, if that car was sitting where the X was, a lot of times I'll come into the Costco parking lot, the gas station thing, and there'll be per someone parked back there, and they're kind of like looking for which is the next line. Uh, you know, the, And I'm a rude Californian, so when I, get, I just go right around them, and, and I've had some really dirty looks and stuff, and so I'm like, just pick a line and commit to it, you know? Um, th that's Minnesota. You know, I, I, had, I was uh, borrowing a friend's car, and I had to go. I thought, man, i got to fill it up. So I went to a Costco out there, and uh, there was a, I mean, it's like, just pick a line. You, you, that would never, what they do here would never never work out there. Um, I, in fact, I went to the line and I realized that the line was actually around the entire Costco parking lot. So I'm like, I got to find the end of that line. So I was just driving through the parking lot. Finally, I found like, oh, there's the end of the line. And so there's two lanes that go all the way around the parking lot, probably a quarter mile before they even get to the gas station. And so that's a little bit of a cultural difference. And if you're not used to that, you, that could be kind of shocking. And the thing that's kind of interesting here is uh, road construction on the highways. You know that you would never see a sign like that in California? I, I'm serious. You would never see a sign that says, take turns at the merge. Here in Minnesota, you know, people get in a nice line, nice single file line. And, you know, again, I'm one of those rude people that wait till the last minute and get in. And I've had some people kind of like honk their horns and get angry because I'm budging, you know, in the, in the line and stuff. And uh, in California, um, you just basically pick a line and go for it. And uh, so it's like, that sign, you wouldn't need that sign out there. Anyways, uh, not saying one's better than the other. It's just, it's, there's differences. And you, you pick up on that when you go to different places. Um, and so while there's cultural differences in, the different, in different places throughout the United States and even in the world, spiritually, everybody's the same. We all deal with sin. We all deal with struggles. You know, we all have trials and hardships. And, and uh, so we all, in that sense, man, everybody's the same. It doesn't matter where you go. 
people are the same. And uh, the topic of today's message is true no matter where you live. And one of the things that um, I, I was just, uh, the Lord laid this. Actually, I had one message prepared for um, for when I went out there, and I got out there, and all of a sudden, it's like I couldn't even. I'm like, I can't put this together. And then I was praying. I spent a, just a long time praying, and the Lord gave me this passage of scripture. And so I shared this scripture at the church there. And I thought, you know, the issues that they're dealing with out there is spiritually same issues we're dealing with here. And so I wanted to share the same message basically that I shared there because I think that it is relevant for us here in Rochester as, as well. And I, I titled the message, Staying in Step with the Spirit. And the, and the passage, of course, is Galatians 5, verses 16 to 25. So if you have your Bibles, if you want to turn there, we're going to look at how to stay in step with the Spirit. And so Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 16, he gives a command. And the command is this, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So that word walk in the spirit, that word walk means to live. How you live your life. That's what it, it describes how you live your life. How you control your life. Um, how you respond to life circumstances. You know, we have all these things that come at us from different directions. How do you deal with it? How do you deal with it? That, that's how you live your life. How you occupy your time. That word encompasses all of that. And so Paul gives this command to walk in the Spirit, but that command comes with a promise. And the promise, he says, if we are living our life in the Spirit, in other words, if we're controlling our life and responding to life circumstances and occupying our time according to the Spirit or in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. That, that's, that's a command with a promise. That, that is so cool. However, when we get to verse 17, Paul describes a conflict. And the conflict is this, verse 17, For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's the conflict. We have the command, but we also have the conflict. And, you know, when Paul is talking about the flesh, he's not talking about my body, my skin and my bones, uh, my circulatory system. That's not what he's talking about. That is not sinful. That's neutral. What the flesh is referring to is the sin nature that you and I are born with, that is inside of us. And the conflict is that struggle that goes on within the believer. You know, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you probably don't have this struggle. You're not struggling between the spirit and the and the flesh because you're just in the flesh. Period. I mean, that's just a, that's just a matter of fact. But for you and I as believers, man, the minute you accept Christ into your heart and throughout your life, there's that struggle that we all have. So, what does Paul mean that the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh? Well, what does the word lust mean? It means to have the affections directed towards something, to desire something, to long after something. And so what Paul is saying here is the desires of our sin nature, they are lined up in conflict with, face-to-face -face against the desires of our spirit. They are 180 degrees out from each other. It's this, what goes on inside of us. It's kind of like a tug of war where my flesh is on one side, struggling and fighting, and my spirit's on the other side, 
struggling and fighting. And and uh, you really could compare it to a, to a tug of war, a spiritual tug of war that goes on inside of us. And Paul, in Romans, he describes what happens when the flesh overpowers the spirit. When that tug of war, uh, the flesh ends up uh, being stronger than the spirit. And he describes that in Romans 7, verse 15. He says, For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. I, I guess, I'm guessing I'm the only person that ever struggles with it. You know, that's like, that can describe my life. I don't. <laughs> like I said, people are the same everywhere. We all struggle with that. We all struggle with that. For you and I as a believer, there's that struggle with the temptation to sin. And that'll never go away. You'll always, as long as you're breathing and living, you'll have temptation. So we have temptation. But, you know, sometimes there isn't even a tug of war that goes on. I'm just being frank with you. Sometimes it's not even a tug of war. Sometimes my flesh just overpowers and it's almost like a tug of war where the one team is dug in and they're ready. The other team's kind of just like hanging onto the rope and they're not ready. And that, that, and in this case, the flesh just gives a big yank and, man, pretty soon there I am laying in the mud. Here I am again. Man, back in Romans seven fifteen. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If you look at this, oh, I had the other one with a tug of war. Those guys, that's actually, that's a professional competition, tug of war. Um, can you imagine being in a continuous tug of war 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year for the rest of your life? Can you imagine physically what that would be like? You know, I have found myself spiritually in that mindset where I'm like, it's constantly a tug of war. And so for me, it's like, man, just bear down, you know, hang in there, dig in your heels and hang on as tight as you can. Don't give in to the lust of the flesh. Strain, dig in. But you know, at some point, you're going to grow weary. At some point, you're going to let a little bit loose on the rope and there you go again. What a relief it is to hear Paul say this in verse 18. But, you know, he described the command, walk in the, or walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And then uh, verse 17, he talks about that conflict that I know we all struggle with. But verse 18, but if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. You know, when he says led by the Spirit, you're not driven by the Spirit. We're not forced by the Holy Spirit, but we're led, we're guided. And what that implies is that you and I need to be willing to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. If I'm willingly following the leading of the Spirit, man, I'm not under the law. What does that mean, not under the law? What it means is I'm not under the power or the authority of it any any longer. In other words, if I break a law this morning, I go out and I do some crime of some sort, I, I violate some law, I am guilty of violating that law, and I'm subject to punishment. In that sense, I'm under the power and the authority of the law. I'm going to bear the consequences of it. Because the power, the law has power, and it has weight, and I'm under that. But what Paul is saying is, if I'm led by the Holy Spirit, the law, it's written on the tablet of my heart. That was God's desire all along, was that his people would just have 
the law written on their hearts. So I'm no longer under the power and the authority of the written law. Now, having said that, it doesn't give me a license to go ahead and violate God's laws. It doesn't give me a license to sin. But what it does is the Spirit guides me in a way that I'm following the Spirit and the intent of the law. And I'm not following the written code because the Spirit in me is guiding me, so I'm not fulfilling those things. I'm not, I'm not under that anymore. And then Paul here, in case someone doesn't know what the outcome of that spiritual tug of war results in, he gives a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's quite a list there. That list of those sins, the works of the flesh, which are sin, they uh, can be divided up into three categories. The first category are what we would call sensual sins. They're having to do with our base human nature. These are the sins that when, they are, when we commit those sins, they drag people down to the same level of instinct as an animal. You're acting just like an animal, basically. The first one is adultery. And that, of course, is sexual immorality, but it's committed by married individuals. That's the context here. Then we have fornication, and that's sexual immorality committed by unmarried individuals. But the interesting thing is the word is pornea, and so it really encompasses all sexual sin. Uncleanness, what does that mean? It means having filthy thoughts and filthy actions. In other words, having a dirty mind. That's really what that means, uncleanness. Lewdness, that describes unbridled lust. Or the Bible calls it licentiousness or lasciviousness or shamelessness. In other words, you could boil all that down to no morals. It's kind of like what you might expect to see if you were watching a Jerry Springer television show, you know, where you, it's just like that's on full display. I don't, is it even on the TV anymore? I don't know, but it used to be years ago. But that's what that refers to. It's just like there's no morals, anything goes. Drunkenness, I don't think I need to ex explain that. Revelries. Now, in the Bible, revelries is referring to drinking parties, not just a drinking party, but one that ends up eventually extend in the in the context of the Bible. It goes into late into the night, and it ends up in sexual debauchery. There's a, there's a it's it's kind of a combination of all this stuff. So that's the sensual sins. Then the other category are spiritual sins, and those are sins that involve the worship of anything other than God. Now, it literally could be worshiping a false deity. That could, that's idolatry. But it could be, what it also is, is anything that you and I allow to get in between our relationship with God and ours. That's what idolatry is. So in that context and with that definition, man, there's a lot of things that can fall into idolatry. A relationship. You could be in a relationship that's keeping you, it, it, you're placing more value on this relationship than you are with your relationship with the Lord. That's idolatry, as the Bible defines it. Um, possessions, wealth, all these things that we put in front of our relationship with the Lord. You know, people even worship themselves. 
ourselves. We could, that's all idolatry. The other one is sorcery, and that word is pharmakeia. In Paul's day, magicians or sorcerers, they used drugs as part of their craft. But what sorceries refers to is not just drugs or drug use, but it's also witchcraft. Basically, anything having to do with the occult will stand in, your, in the way of your relationship with the Lord. And I would throw in, I think, even recreational drug use, illicit recreational drug use. I think that falls into this category. Then the last category are social sins. And those are sins against other people. And so we have the hatred. Hate, uh, so we have the list. Hatred. Uh, contentions. Contentions. That, that means quarrels or wrangling. And uh, wrangling is a word we don't really use too often. So here's what it means. It means an engagement in a long, complicated dispute or argument. And so, you know, when you, when you look at that, go, man, um, I'm married, man. We have, we have uh, sometimes complicated disputes and arguments. You know, we, we have quarrels sometimes. And sometimes families have that, right? I mean, that's, if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. You know, even, and we haven't got to it yet in the book of Acts, but even Paul and Barnabas had a dispute, had a quarrel. And it was a heated dispute that they actually had to go separate ways for a period of time anyways. What this is referring to is not that, because if that's the case, I mean, I had a, if you have a fight with your wife or your husband, you know, and you're, you're in a court, that doesn't mean, oh, now you're not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. What that refers to is someone who is contentious. They love strife. <laughs> you know, they live for it, man. They love the battle. They, they, the, the, the battle's the thing. You know, that's what that's referring to. Jealousies. Outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambitions. Now, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious, right? It's good, to, it's good to have ambitions. But what this is describing is self-seeking, self-promoting ambition. Self-centeredness is what we would call that. And then dissensions and heresies. And there are some slight nuances between them, but I usually kind of, push, kind of bring them together. And basically, they both, in some respects, mean disunity, being factious, Having a party spirit, and what I mean by a party spirit is us against them type of a situation. It's someone who causes strife or division. That's what this is referring to. And you know, to be honest with you, gossip is typically the, the vehicle of uh, dissensions and heresies. Then we have envy and murders. And notice in verse 21, Paul gives this entire list and he says, and the like. So in other words, this isn't the... This isn't the complete list. It's not exhaustive. There are more before that. And Paul says, I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, when I've gone through that list, and you're sitting there, and you're reading it, or you're listening, you you're probably go, oh, man, yeah, I've done that. Ooh, I've done that. I've done those things. Does that mean that I'm not going to inherit the kingdom of God? That, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying he's warning those who practice such things. That means habitual repetitiveness. Now, one thing that if you uh, are into sports or you're into music or you know just about anything, you know that phrase, practice makes perfect, right? And that's true. The more you practice, the better you get at something. That's, in the, that's a good practice 
But when we're talking about practicing these sins, the repetitiveness and the habitual, you're, you're, you're getting better, but it's in a bad way. You're getting worse, is what, what that's referring to. So we have these works of the flesh. And then Paul contrasts that with the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22. But of the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So here the fruit of the Spirit Notice that he doesn't call it the works of the Spirit. He calls it the fruit of the Spirit. I think that's significant. First of all, it speaks of a positive outcome. I mean, fruit is pleasant, right? I mean, I love, everybody loves fruit. It's beneficial. It's pleasant. And what it is is an outcome of being, uh, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead your life. It's just, it just happens. You're not working at it. It just happens as you're led by the Spirit. That's what fruit is. You know, have you ever been by a fruit tree and, and heard the fruit straining? You know, to pop, you know, there's, oh, there's an apple, you know, it's like, oh, man, look at that thing. No, fruit just happens. It happens because it's, it's in the vine or in the tree or whatever. It's being nurtured, and it just, it just happens. That's what this is referring to, the fruit of the Spirit. It's a positive outcome by being led by the Spirit, allowing the Holy Spirit to lead our hearts and our lives. He says, against such there is no law. In 1 Timothy 1.9, Paul says the law is not made for a righteous person. And when, when Paul says here, against such there is no law, basically what he's saying is you're not going to violate any law by having this fruit in your life. There's no law against, you know, like being too loving or being too patient or anything like that. You're not going to exceed any, any lawful limit or anything like that. So we have the command, walking in the Spirit. We have the conflict, that tug of war that goes on in our hearts. We have the two different outcomes based on who, really who's in control, my flesh or the spirit. And then Paul here in verse 24 describes the reality of the crucified flesh. Verse 24, And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That's a spiritual reality if you're a born-again believer this morning. Notice it says those who are Christ have crucified. It's a past tense thing. It has happened. When did, it happen? when did that take place? Well, it took place at Calvary when Christ conquered sin and death when he died on the cross. But when you and I enter into a relationship with the Lord, when we're born again, at that moment, it becomes a reality for you and for me. The Bible says we're no longer a slave to my sinful flesh. We're no longer slaves to sin. That's the reality. That's what scripture says. But because of that conflict between the flesh and the spirit, it's not always my reality. And it's not always your reality either. You know, there are passages of scriptures that I just intuitively know. For example, in Romans 6, verse 6 and 7, Paul says this, knowing this, and he's speaking to believers, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's the reality. That the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. I know that in my heart. I know that in my mind. That's the reality. That's the truth of the matter. I'm no longer a slave of sin. And I also know uh, that I, what I need to do that Paul describes down in, later on in chapter 6 of Romans 
verses 11 and 12, he says, Likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. We know that, right? We're believers. We've read Romans before. We know that struggle that goes on in our hearts. We know the reality that Jesus Christ conquered sin and death. I know that I should no longer be a slave of sin, and I know that I should no longer let sin reign in me. But because of that internal struggle, man, so often I find myself back in Romans chapter 7, verse 15. What I will to do, that I don't practice. But what I hate, that I do. Paul gives a conclusion here in verse 25. He says, if we live in the Spirit, let's also walk in the Spirit. Now in verse 16, if you recall, I said walking in the Spirit is referring to how you live your life. And that's a certain Greek word. When you get to verse 25, that work, or excuse me, that walk in the Spirit actually is a different Greek word. And that word means basically to walk in line with or to be in step with. If you've ever been in the military, you know what marching is. You have to do it all the time. And so marching, you, you get in cadence with whoever's leading the march, and you're all stepping at the same time. That's what that Greek word is referring to, walking in line or being in step with the Spirit. There's another translation of this verse. It says this, Since we are living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. So, the truth is, we've been set free. You and I, we've been set free from the power of sin in our lives. We have crucified our flesh with all its passions and desires. But because our sin nature is still present within us, there's still that internal struggle between the flesh and the spirit. And to be honest with you, so often I found myself working to not fulfill the less of the flesh. You know, digging my heels in and hanging on and I'm going to bear through, I'm going to make it through this temptation and stuff. But not only working to not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, but also working to have self-control. Working at it, straining, I mean, I've got to have self-control through this situation. Working to be faithful, working to be kind. And what so often happens in my life is failing. And once again, Man, I let go just that one time. Man, I just, I just, I loosen my grip just once. Man, and feeling that sense of failure again. You know what the problem was? I was trying to make things happen in my own strength. That, that, that's really the problem. Where Paul is saying, man, if, if you'll just willingly follow the Spirit's leading, man, that, that fruit's going to happen in your life. He'll produce that fruit in me. If you and I would just get in step, and stay in step with the Holy Spirit, then I'm not going to fulfill the works of the flesh, and the fruit of the Spirit will be evident in my life if I'll just walk in the Spirit and stay in step with Him. So the $64,000 question is, that was an old show, by the way, but so if you're younger, you may not get that. It's just like, it's the, 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 the question is, I'll put it that way, how do we get in step with the Holy Spirit? What do we do? And what I wanted to do in the rest of this, of this is I just want to share what I've discovered. 
This is for me, for my own life. You might find some things that work differently for you, and I'll be honest with you, I have by no means arrived. I still find myself sometimes like, oh man, I blew it again. But I want to share with you some things that I have found that has transformed my life, and I, I hope it encourages you this morning. The very first thing, how do we get in step with the Holy Spirit? The very first thing is, do you see that you have a need? Do you recognize that, man, something's not quite right. I need, I, need, I need a change in my life. If you are an alcoholic or a drug addict, you might have heard of this phrase before. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? You guys heard that, right? It's the same thing. Are you sick and tired of being sick and tired with regard to that sin that so easily besets you? Now, we all struggle with different ways. The enemy knows what your weaknesses is, and that's where he's going to tempt you. You know, that, that's, that's, he knows where you, what you give into. And so are you sick and tired of being... That's the first step. You've got to be, get to the point where you're like, man, I need, I'm just not there. I need something. I shared with you a couple weeks ago that I recently read a book, and I would encourage you if you want to get it it's, and read it, it's, it's just an encouraging book. It's called They Found the Secret. And it's not, a, it's not a, a new book. It was written back, in fact, the first copyright's 1960, so it's been out there for a while, but it's still available on Amazon. What the our author does is he takes 20 men and women. Some of them were, are contemporary to, you know, earlier, like in the 60s. They were contemporary to that time frame. And some from previous uh, generations, people that you might know, like D.L. Moody, for example, or Oz, J. Oswald Chambers, um, obscure people, at least obscure to me, a lady by the name of Eugenia Price. I didn't know anything about her. Now I do because I, I Googled her after I read this. <laughs> um, so it takes these 20 individuals, famous and not so famous, and there's one common theme that runs through all of their stories, all of their testimonies. There's one recurring theme, and they frequently describe it as the crisis of the deeper life. Each one of these people, they got to a point where they said, man, I need something more. I'm struggling. They're sensing a need for a deeper walk with the Lord. So that's the very first step is desiring a deeper walk in your life. And you know, if you're here this morning and that's something that you're desiring, you're hungering, hungering and thirsting, you know, I got good news for you. Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Man, do, do you want, are you hungering and thirsting for more? There's a promise right there. You, you will be filled. So the first step is sensing an awareness that you have a need. The second step is completely surrendering to the Holy Spirit. And that starts with seeking the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I, I know you call it the filling of the Holy Spirit, whatever you want to call it. I know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit indwells a believer in salvation. When you, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you receive the Holy Spirit. He's a sign and a seal of our salvation. He's like God's security deposit that he gives you. That happens the minute you become a born-again believer. But you know what I know in my own life? There are times when I quench the Holy Spirit in my life by something I do or something I say, or I grieve him by my thoughts or my actions. There's something more. Jesus said this 
in John 7:37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John gives a commentary of that verse. He says he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. This is my personal belief. I believe that this is describing more than just that indwelling, sanctifying presence of the Holy Spirit that we all have, as if you're a born-again believer. I think what Jesus is describing is being so full of the Holy Spirit that he flows out from you, impacting others with the fruit of the Spirit in you. I, I think that's what Jesus is talking about. Listen, if a glass of water, if you pour, if you pour water into a glass and you, you fill it up half full, whatever you want to fill, it's in there, it exists in there, but it's not overflowing it. It's in the cup, but it's not overflowing. But when you take that same glass and you start pouring, and you keep pouring, and it gets to the point where you get that surface tension, and you just keep pouring, what happens? It's going to flow out, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to impact everything around it. That's what I think Christ is speaking about here, that outflowing filling of the Holy Spirit. And so ask Jesus to fill you with the Holy Spirit. And, you know, that's, a, that's not a thing where it's like, okay, now I'm going to start talking in King James English and swinging. You know, it's not, it's not this, like, this weird experience I'm going to have. This is something that you do by faith. You receive that by faith. You know, when I accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, I didn't feel saved. I didn't all of a sudden start talking like, you know, I had this halo all of a sudden appears above my head and I start talking differently and stuff. No. In fact, there were a couple times I had to go back and go, man, am I really saved? You know, but what do I do? I go back to Scripture. Hey, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. I repented of my sins. The Bible says if I do those things, I'm forgiven. You know, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I, I know that. I believe it. And so what do I do? I walk in that faith. I walk because I know that I'm, I may not feel it, but I know it and I receive it by faith. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is no different than that. It's receiving it and then receiving it by faith and then walking in that baptism. And what I mean by that is living your life accordingly. Again, being completely surrendered to him. Paul wrote this in Romans 12, verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You know, some Christians have kind of a misconception about the Holy Spirit. They believe that the Holy Spirit is an influence. You know, they speak of it as like an impersonal force or something. The Holy Spirit's not an influence or a force. He's a person. In fact, he's the third person of the Godhead. In other words, he is God. And if you think about it, Jesus Christ, right? God the Son. You know, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Son was sent to earth. His ministry was to come to earth, to live among us, to die on the cross for us. Well, he came and he inhabited the body, right? He'd been sent to earth and he inhabited a human body. It was the same with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, who is God, is sent to earth after Jesus Christ ascended into heaven there at Pentecost. And now he inhabits human bodies that are surrendered to him. So what does complete surrender to the Holy Spirit look like? I want to share with you a prayer that I make. And I, I just encourage you to make this your daily prayer. 
Again, the Holy Spirit is God. So I can, I can pray to the Holy Spirit. He is God. And basically, taking that Psalm 12.1, you present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is what I do. God, I give you my body today. I present my body to you. Do whatever you want with me, through me. Send me wherever you want me to go. Lead me. I give you my brain. I, I want my thoughts to not be my thoughts. I want them to be your thoughts, Holy Spirit. I give you my eyes. Let me look at things the way you look at things. I don't want to look at things the way I... Whatever I do, man, I blow it. I don't want to look that way. I want to look how you look. Give me... I present my ears to you. Let me listen to what you want me to listen to. Let me hear you speaking to me. Completely surrendering to the Lord being filled with the Holy Spirit, those are two steps that'll get, those are two things that you can do that'll get you in step with the Holy Spirit. Okay, you're there, but how do you stay in step with the Holy Spirit? Well, first of all, it just goes to Romans 12, verse 2. Your mind needs a daily renovation. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable will of God. Okay, we've got the verse. How do I renew my mind? Well, you do that, first of all, by knowing God's heart and his mind. You know his heart and his will. How do you do that? Well, it comes through reading scriptures. That's why we encourage daily reading your Bible. You know, when you read the Bible, we, if we have examples of saints that went before us, how God interacted in their lives. We have the promises of God in Scripture. And through these things that we read, we get to understand God's heart and his character, his nature. We, we do that. The more you read it, the more you're going to be more familiar with God. You know when you're in a relationship, you just enter into a relationship with someone? Like, for example, when I met my wife. You know, it's not like I just, you know, met her once and then, you know, six months later said, hey, you know... Would you like to get married, you know? <laughs> no, I spent time getting to know her by communicating with her. Hey, what are you into? You know, what do you like and stuff? And just spending time and talking. And, and as you're doing that, you're learning. Well, that's how reading scripture does. Some people look at it as, man, it's a, it's a duty. I got, you know, I got to do my devotion. No, man, read it in the sense that, man, God's revealing himself to you through scripture that's how you get to know his character and you know we've got believers here this morning that are going through some very difficult things some things are like they, they just hit you sideways like man where did that come from and then sometimes that it's it's so big in front of you like i don't even know how to get around this situation when you're facing something like that if you know the heart of the lord if you're familiar with his heart and his character then you know from scripture that jesus loves you you know that he has a plan and a purpose. And it's for good. It's not for harm. And so then you go, man, yeah, I, I don't understand this, but I understand you, Lord, that you love me. And I can look back on what I do know. And I know that he's going to perfect his, his will, his perfect will. He, he's going he's gonna to work out those things in my life. Or sometimes when I'm facing a situation and I have to make a decision, there's two paths and two outcomes it might sound cliche, but what would Jesus do? You know, WWJD. When you get to know the word, you're into the word, you start to know, man, I, I think I know what God's heart is in this already. I know what God would do. I know what Jesus would do, and I'm going to do that too. Along with knowing the Lord's heart and his will, 
I also need to know how and where I stand in relation to God's heart and His will. Psalm 119.105 Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Um, there's a place down south of Hollister, California that used to go to off and on. And when I was in high school, me and some buddies, we decided to go to the Pinnacles. And uh, there's just these real cool rock formations. It's probably an hour south of um, Hollister, something like that, maybe a half hour south, kind of in the back hills and stuff. And it's these great, beautiful rock formations. And me and my buddies from high school, we drove down there. We were going to we were gonna camp there overnight, and then we were going to go rock climbing because we were into rock climbing and rappelling and all that back, then, back in that day. And so we drove down there, and uh, we got it was at nighttime, and uh, we got to this campground by the Pinnacles, and and uh, for some reason, this is like probably 45, 50 years ago, something like probably about 50 years ago. Um, no, more like 45. Anyways, at some point, a uh, long time ago, so my memory's a little bit creative at this point, but uh, you know, when we got there, for whatever reason, I remember pulling into the campground and then us guys saying, nah, we don't want to stay here. I think either we were too broke to pay for the camping fees <laughs> or we just thought, you know, we want to go and do our own thing. So we're men, you know. So what we ended up doing is we turned around and we went down this windy road. And again, it's pitch dark it's night and we're like you know what we're just gonna find a place we're gonna just camp out under the stars man let's do that yeah let's do that you know and uh so we we did that we found a spot and uh it was again it's pitch black at night we we got out our sleeping bags because we're gonna sleep under the stars you know we go out into this out into this countryside and we laid out and slept and stuff and in the morning you know in california there's usually that morning kind of a hazy foggy stuff as it was lifting started looking around at my surroundings and what I realized was there was cows around us. <laughs> what we had done is we had laid our sleeping bags out in the pasture <laughs> and sleeping and I'm like oh well that's kind of interesting. You know God's word is like that. It's a lamp to my feet. When you start reading God's word I start reading and I go wow I'm not there. Look where I'm at. It shows me what I'm standing in or what I'm laying in or what I'm wallowing in. It shows me the junk that I'm in, but it also shows me the path out of it. God's word is a lamp to my feet. It reveals where I'm standing, but it also is a light to my path. Hey, this is the way to get out of that situation. This is my practice again. What works for you is works for you, but I pray before I read scriptures. And then I read with an attitude that the Lord is right there. That he's speaking to me. He's revealing things to me. I come to the word with an expectancy to hear. Lord, I'm, I'm, I, want, I need to hear something from you today. And he never fails. He never fails. And when he does speak to you, stop, drop, not roll, stop, drop, and respond. And what I mean by that is kind of a, just a phrase, but what I mean is when I start reading, and, and yeah, maybe I've got a goal. I'm going to read so many chapters. I'm reading for so much time. But smack dab in the middle, man, all of a sudden the Lord speaks to me. I stop at that point, and I respond. I pray. Maybe it's a prayer of repentance. Lord, man, I see your word, and I know where I'm at. Lord, please forgive me. Or maybe it's a word of thank you, Lord. Thanks for this. Or whatever. I, you respond to it, and then you keep going. And then also to stay in step, I need to be reminded of the Holy Spirit's continual presence in my heart. It's a reminder that we need to do. And, I, and again, this is what's worked for me. I have discovered the importance of personal worship. I think it's so important. 
You know, you read the Bible, and the Bible says that David was a man after God's own heart. When you look at David's life, he was an adulterer. He committed adultery. He was a murderer. Uh, do you remember the Nabal incident? I call it the Nabal incident, but remember when Nabal was real rude to David and his men, and David's like, strap on your swords, guys. We're going to go take this guy out. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, kind of runs interference, and it prevents... David was outburst of wrath. Man, he was going to kill this guy. He was just angry. And the Lord prevented him. That's a man after God's own heart. David, we know, was a permissive parent. Then a man after God's own heart. He even faked insanity once when he was in a place where he shouldn't be with the Philistines. He just acted like a crazy guy, drooling his beard and everything. They're like, get this guy out of here. He's weird. You know? That's a man after God's own heart. God gave commands for the kings of Israel. He, of course, was the first king. And one of the kings, one of the commands was don't take a census of the people. What did David do? At the end of his life, he took a census of the people. A lot of people died because of that. He also multiplied wives to him. So not as much as his son uh, Solomon, but I think he probably set an example for Solomon, and Solomon took it further. But, but he had multiple wives too. The king of Israel were not supposed to have multiple wives, but he did. So I look at his life and I go, how was he a man after God's own heart? Now I do know that David's humble. You see that in many places in Scripture. I also know that he exhibited faith on many occasions. One of the most famous ones is when he killed Goliath. What a step of faith. So he's a great man. Of, he's a man of faith. He's a, a man of humility. But I see all these flaws. How is he a man after God's own heart? And the only thing I can think of is he was a worshiper. He worshiped the Lord. One of the best ways that I've found to be reminded of the presence of the Holy Spirit throughout the day is through personal worship. Think about it. You read through the Psalms, right? David's depressed. What does he do? He worships the Lord. David's angry, the imprecatory psalms, you know, break their teeth. Was he, and in the end, he's worshiping the Lord. He's fearful, he worships. He's thankful, he worships. He's victorious, he worships. And when he repents, he worships. That's the key. I have a suggestion for you. It's something that I've done. You know, I grew up in a denominational church where we just sang, sung hymns. And um, I, I still sometimes, as, as the Lord lays them on my heart, I'll sing hymns as I know them and as I remember them. But one of the things that was a blessing for me was to get involved with the Calvary Chapel movement because that was Maranatha music came out of Calvary Chapel movement and stuff. And they have all these great songs, scriptures basically put to music. And, you know, growing up through the Calvary Chapel, we, went, that's, we sung, you know, praise songs and hymns and stuff. And so many scriptures, I could start reading a scripture, I go, ah, oh, man, I know the tune to this. What I've done in my own Bible study, in my own Bibles, when I get to a place where it's like, I know I can sing that verse, I highlight it and I put a little musical symbol next to it. And then when I'm in my own devotion, sometimes, man, I just thumb through there like, oh, there's, oh, yeah, and I start worshiping, I start singing it. And I want to encourage you to worship audibly. I know sometimes you just worship songs in your mind or you, you listen to it. Or maybe you're driving in a car and you're listening to it. And that's fine. But I know for me, when I worship audibly, it engages my whole being. It engages my mind. My, it's just my whole being is engaged in it. And... Uh, you know, if you're not self-conscious, like some people, man, I can't sing, or you got a, maybe you got a beautiful voice, just belt it out. We were, we were at the uh, Minneapolis airport a number of years ago, and we were, I don't know, it was late at night or something, and 
there was this lady, and she was from Africa because I could tell the accent. It wasn't just, you know, it wasn't from around here. But she was singing hymns on the top, or singing worship songs on the top of her lungs as she's walking around picking up trash and stuff. And it was just like, man, it's so beautiful. Here's this person just focusing on the Lord. I encourage you to do that. You might say, well, you know, I can't sing well. Think about this. Paul and Silas, I, I don't think they had the best voices. Remember when they were in the Philippian jail? At midnight, they're in shackles. In midnight, they're worshiping the Lord. Listen, they were behind a couple bars and they didn't have the right key, but they're still worshiping. Thank you. I paid her to laugh. No, I'm just kidding. Bad joke. It's a bad joke. Hey, if you can't sing, just find your alone time and, and a place. You know, you might say, I don't want to sing in front of them. That's fine. Just go by yourself, find a place, and sing. I just encourage you to do that. And you know, what's kind of funny, again, I've got creative memory as I'm getting older. Sometimes I forget the words to a song, and I'm sort of like, oh, and I forget part of it, and I go, oh, and what I do is I just make up a word that fits. And, and, and I think what I'm doing that is what's... Psalm 96, one is, oh, sing to the Lord a new song. <laughs> sing to the Lord all the earth. I'm just doing that. I'm like throwing in words. It's, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Just worship the Lord. You see, Psalm 22, verse 3 says this, but you are holy enthroned in the praises of Israel. When I'm worshiping the Lord, it puts the Lord in the proper place in my heart, but it also gives me the right perspective during the day. It's like he's here. And I know it, and it's a reminder. And I tell you, I've been doing that, and it's really been making a difference in my life. So in conclusion, how do I know I'm walking in step with the Spirit? My wife usually tells me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> she tells me when I'm not, I should say. No, it's not always easy to tell when I'm walking in the Spirit. But I can tell you, I, I always know when I'm not walking in the Spirit. Man, they're the works of the flesh. They're, they're there. You know, and when that happens, it's not like, oh, I'm failed, I'm done. No. Repent of whatever it is. As soon as you recognize it, get back and step and keep walking with the Holy Spirit. Keep, keep pressing forward. Staying in step with the Spirit is really what Jesus was talking about in John 15, 5, when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. You know, the Lord desires a closer walk with each one of us. He wants to take your and my life and completely transform it. And you know that you can actually live a victorious Christian life? It's possible. It's possible. I'm going to close with a couple of uh, quotes that uh, were at the end of the book from the author, and I, I just want to share these with you. It says, The life that wins is an actuality not just an aspiration. Its secret is simple, and yet it's profound. It's plain to the heart filled with faith and obedience, but it's perplexing to self-will and self-effort. It's an obtainment, not an attainment. It's a gift to be received, and not an achievement to be earned. You know, it comes to a heart that's hungry, to a heart that's filled with the Holy Spirit and completely surrendered to Him. If you would do those things, man, you'll walk in victory in your life. Once you stand up, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Let the worship team come on up.